0: But you do not take care of the flock. You have not strengthened the weak, or healed the sick, or bound up the injured. You have not brought back the strays and searched for the lost. You have ruled them harshly and brutally, so they were scattered because there was no shepherd. And when they were scattered, they became food for all the wild animals. My sheep wandered over all the mountains and on a very high hill. They were scattered over the whole earth, and no one searched. Or looked for them. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. As surely as I live, declares the sovereign Lord, because my flock lacks a shepherd, and so has been plundered, and has become food for all the wild animals, and because my shepherd did not search for my flock, but cared for themselves rather than for my flock. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. This is what the sovereign Lord says I am against the shepherds and I will hold them accountable for my flock I will remove them from tending the flock so that the shepherds can no longer feed themselves I will rescue my flock from their mouths and it will no longer be food for them for this is what the sovereign Lord says I myself will search for my sheep and look after them and our second reading tonight is from Matthew Matthew chapter 9 Asked the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. Jesus called his twelve disciples to him and gave them authority to drive out impure spirits and to heal to every disease and sickness. These are the names of the twelve apostles. First, Simon, who is called Peter, and his brother Andrew, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, James, son of Altheus and Thaddeus, Simon, the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. These twelve Jesus sent out with the following instructions. Do not go among the Gentiles or enter any town of the Samaritans. Go rather to the lost sheep of Israel. As you go, proclaim this message. The kingdom of heaven has come near.
1: Well, good day, everyone. Uh, If we haven't met, I'm Dave. I'm one of the um, pastors here at church. I hope you've had a good week, um, Christmas and whatnot. Um, The highlight of the week for me, by far, as I'm sure it was for all of you, uh, was the Ashes. Do we have any cricket fans? Any? Any? Come on, guys. I guess it happens as you get older. You watch really boring sports. But cricket, oh my goodness. Whether you like cricket or not, can we all agree on one thing? There's nothing better than beating English people. It's just there's no Christmas pudding that tastes as good as that. And that's what happened this week. Australia beat England. Oh, yeah. And uh, um, we did it at at the the Melbourne Cricket Ground, which is where the Boxing Day test is played every year. I want to talk to you about the MCG. Um, That's Australia's biggest stadium. It fits 100,000 people. Yet I discovered this week the record for the the MCG was not um, a sporting event uh, or um, a music event or anything like that. Uh, Rather, in 1959, 100 and uh, 43,000 people, the record, um, crammed into the MCG to see this man. Now, does anyone know who that guy is? You don't have to put your hand up, I can't see it. So just... I can, obviously, because I saw your hand up, but shout it out. Anyone? Billy Graham. Billy Graham. Billy Graham. Now, some of you, of course, won't know who that is. Um, Billy Graham, in the 20th century, was the world's most famous um, preacher uh, and evangelist. He spoke to more people about Jesus than anyone else in history, hundreds of countries, millions of people. In 1959, a group of Australian churches got together and invited them to come out and speak at all the capital cities over a 10-week period. Um, What happened in those 10 weeks actually transformed the country in a way no one could have expected. The numbers alone are staggering to comprehend. Um, In that 10-week period, um, uh, 4 million people no, three million. It's a quarter of it. Three million people uh, went to see Billy Graham in the flesh. That's a quarter of the population at the time. There was 12 million people in Australia. Three million of them went to see him. In Sydney alone, 980,000 individuals went to see him speak over two weeks. The last day in Sydney, he spoke. 150,000 people poured into the S.C.G. and the showground, which used to be next door. In the showground, they couldn't even see a screen. They were just listening to a to a, like a stereo of him speaking. Um, most excitingly of all approximately 130,000 people professed faith in Jesus for the first time uh, in that period, including uh, on a personal level my, my dad, um, my mum, my uncle, uh, aunt, a whole bunch of my family. Now, in the morning services, I actually asked people to put their hand up if they had been converted, and, and there, was a, there was actually a bunch of people who had. Uh, we do have some, some older brethren with us here tonight. Was anyone here converted at the Billy Graham crusade? Does anyone know anyone who was converted to the Billy Graham crusades? We've got a couple of hands. I guarantee you, uh, your parents, your grandparents uh, would definitely know because this was a huge deal in Australia. Um, In the following years it happened, it made it very clear that this burst of energy and interest in Christianity wasn't a flash in the pan, Um, it actually changed things. Uh, Criminality went down, alcoholism went down, single parenting went down, uh, churches filled up, Sunday schools were overflowing, Bible colleges had queues of people waiting to get in. That was 60 years ago. And so what I want us to do now, though, is fast forward to 2022, right now today, and, and I want you to consider the spiritual landscape of Australia, the country we live in. Just think about how you would assess the spirituality of, of Australia. When you compare it to what happened 60 years ago, I think any, all of us would be able to say, um, well, things are bleak. Uh, they're, they're not what they were. Um, Australia's well, seemingly moved on from from Christianity. Uh, the media will often use the term "post-Christian" uh, about Australia. Have you heard the term "post-Christian"? And it's a term that it's an insult. Okay, what it means is that Australia was once so the, the religion that was ascendancy was Christianity. Christianity was in the ascendancy, um, but they, those days have gone. And today, uh, Christianity is dying. It's withering away. It's it's almost dead. You know, kick it. Come on get it on. And, and um, the statistics that we see around the country uh, kind of backed it up. Seven to eight percent of the nation at most in Bible-believing churches, millions of Australians don't even know a single Christian, 40 percent of the nation hostile, um, antagonistic, or at, the, at best completely disinterested uh, in Christianity uh, or Jesus or, or anything like that. And I want to say those are big numbers, big figures. But when you think about your own friends, your own family, your own work colleagues, schoolmates, whatever it is, does that feel right? I think that feels right. It, it feels as if uh, we're, um, we're a diminishing minority of people. Uh, and and uh, people don't like us, people don't want anything to do with us, and um, no interest in the church whatsoever. It can feel hopeless. Now, if I was to come to you today, though, and say, right, it's 2022... What we want to see happen this year is is exactly what happened in 1959. We we want to see millions and millions of people coming to hear about Jesus, hundreds of thousands of them converted. Let me ask you, whether you're a Christian or not here today, if if we wanted to see that happen, what do you think we should do? If we had to pull our collective wisdom together, um, what idea would we come up with? Well, it might be that we'd pray for another Billy Graham, another big figure to come and preach. It might be any number of other things. But the good news for us today is that we actually don't need to depend on our own wisdom and our own strategy and our own sort of um, uh, collective ideas to come up with a solution to what's going on in our nation because God in his word speaks directly to where we are. You see, when it comes to evangelism, when it comes to, and that's a word that means telling people about Jesus, when it comes to us thinking about how to win the, na- the nation for Jesus, how to, how to actually see our friends converted to come and love Jesus, um, well, well, we don't have to ask one another for advice. What we need to do is go to God's word in the Bible and, and actually take note of what Jesus says. What Jesus says about the world that we live in, and also what Jesus says about how we approach the world, because you may not be aware of this or not, but when Jesus lived, the, the very center of his ministry was evangelism. It was seeing people saved. Jesus gave his own mission statement in the, in the Gospel of Luke saying, I've come to seek and save the lost. Jesus was all about evangelism. And so for us... When we see Australia, not through our own eyes, but rather through the eyes that Jesus gives us here in in the Bible, um, what we begin to see is the situation is never, ever hopeless, ever. For Christians, that term does not exist. There is always hope. God is not finished with Australia. Uh, It's not all over. In fact, the opposite is true. There is hope. Uh, We should be hopeful. Um, And that's really what we're going to look at today. Uh, we're looking at Matthew chapter 9. And if you have a Bible, open it up in front of you there. If you don't have a Bible, feel free to, to, to Google Matthew 9. Don't go on social media. I can see what's on your phones from up here. Um, why are you laughing? I can't. No, I can't. Um, but Matthew chapter 9, the, the very last part from verse 35. The reason we've gone to this part of Scripture, we could go to many parts of the Gospels to see Jesus at work as an evangelist, but this one's... Um, I chose this one deliberately because not only do we have an insight here into Jesus as the evangelist, the way he views the world, the the problems that he identifies, the solution that he uncovers for us, but also um, Matthew 9 is a kind of pivot point of the gospel of Matthew. Up until this point, Matthew's gospel has been primarily focused on presenting Jesus as king. Have you ever looked at Matthew 1 before, you know, that big genealogy of Jesus, and wondered what is that doing there? Man, You ever given a Bible to someone and say, hey, why don't you read Matthew? No, no, go to Mark, read Mark. The genealogy of Jesus is to establish that he is royalty. He is a king. And uh, 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 chapter 1 to 8 is focused on sort of establishing that with his works and deeds and so on. But here in Matthew 9, whilst Jesus continues to focus on presenting himself as king, something else happens. He he starts to include his disciples for the first time in what's going on. This is a, a passage which is focused on training and equipping those who would follow him into their role in the great mission that Jesus is on. So we're looking at two things tonight. Um, firstly, what does Jesus tell us about the world, the problems, and the solution? And secondly, uh, how does He train His followers, His followers, uh, about what it looks like uh, to be involved in the, in that mission? So, come with me to verse 35 uh, and verse 37. Verse 35 to verse 37, the end of chapter 9. I just want to point out three things that we see here about, about Jesus and how he views the world. Verse 35 to verse 37. 35 tells us um, that at this point in Jesus' ministry, he is going through all the towns of uh, rural Galilee. That's around 200 towns, approximately 300 people, 3 million people, I should say. Now, whenever Jesus went anywhere, take notice, um, there's crowds, crowds of people. They came to listen to him, he's a powerful speaker, but they also came to be healed by him. Um, and you can imagine, Oi, we've got the COVID facility up here. When that thing is open, I'm glad they're not open during the middle of the worst part of the pandemic, by the way, that's really helpful. But when it is open, um, there's a queue of people. <laughs> now, Dan, terrible drive. Jesus had the power to heal any sickness. And in Jesus's day, medicine was very rudimentary. So people would have been surrounding Jesus, people with deformities and physical ailments, leprosy, terrible, terrible injuries and illnesses. I want you to look at verse 36. What did Jesus feel about the people? That's the first thing I want you to notice. How does Jesus feel about people? Verse 36. When he saw the crowds, he had, what's that word? Compassion on them. Now, compassion is a special word. It does not just mean feel sorry for. It kind of means feel sorry with it's a concept of shared pain. It actually literally means a pain in your gut. Jesus has got a pain in his gut as he views people in trouble and strife. It hurts him because he cares so much. The question is, what is it that makes Jesus care so much? What is it that makes him feel suffering and pain as he views people? And this might surprise you. Have a look at what verse 36 continues to say. He had compassion on them. Why? Because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Now, that's a strange expression, isn't it? Harassed and helpless is the the English translation of some words which are actually pretty strong. They're stronger than that, I reckon. They really mean torn apart. The people were torn apart, ripped apart, like like sheep ripped apart by wolves. Now, that's an important description, sheep without a shepherd, and harks all the way back to the first reading we had. Did you hear it from Ezekiel 34 in the Old Testament of the Bible? Uh, It's a description about um, the the leadership of the Jewish people, the poor leadership of the Jewish people, that they were not leading the people to know and to love God. What's the picture being said here? When Jesus views people and he has compassion on them, it is not because of their physical ailments. It's not because of their disease and their deformity, because of their leprosy and and their physical pain. When Jesus views people with compassion, he does so because he views them with eternity in view with eternal eyes. It's their spiritual condition that causes compassion, their spiritual situation. Because these people have been so poorly led that as a combination of poor leadership and their own dedication, like our own, to sinfulness, rejection of God, they are spiritually lost, spiritually dead, in spiritual darkness. They do not know God If you went outside tonight, you know, and, and you asked 100 people, what is the biggest crisis facing Australia at the beginning of 2022? What would, what would 100 of them say? COVID? Yeah. COVID. In fact, if you ask everyone here, most people would probably agree. Well, yeah, COVID. I, would, I actually preached this Sunday last year. And we were like, woo, it's over. <laughs> Avalon. Now, Omicron, But when we view the world and people the way that Jesus does, my dear friends, we see that the biggest problem facing our society is not physical. It's not physical pain. It's not hunger. It's not homelessness. It's not. It's not. um, It's not mental pain. It's not. It's not anxiety or depression. Those things are real. I'm not diminishing them, and Jesus does feel uh, compassion over those things. But that is not the chief cause of compassion for Jesus, nor for the Christian. The chief cause of crisis in our nation is not coronavirus. It's Christlessness. It's in not knowing God. Because that means your eternity, your eternity is in big, big trouble. You are an eternal creature. You will live forever. But if you reject God, you will not be with him for eternity. That's what causes Jesus' compassion. The third thing I want you to notice. What does Jesus do about it? Well, you see that in verse 35, he does three things, doesn't he? What's Jesus spend his time doing? Well, um, we're told three things. He teaches, he preaches from the Bible um, in synagogues. Uh, He heals and and he, he cures people. But also, I want you to focus on that main thing in the middle there. He proclaims the good news of the kingdom, the good news of the kingdom. And that's what I want you to focus on there, the good news of the kingdom. Now, what's that actually mean? We don't have time to flesh out the idea of kingdom uh, in too much detail. I'd love to invite you to tomorrow, though, if you're free Monday and Tuesday. We're really going to focus more and more on these sort of subjects and topics. Um, But let me try and summarize what Jesus is saying here, what Jesus proclaims when he proclaims the good news of the kingdom. Um, It's what we in Christianity call the gospel. And the gospel as many of you know, is literally translated as good news. It's a Greek word. Um, the word of proclaiming the gospel, does anyone know what that word is? Evangelism. That's the translation of evangelism, tra- uh, proclaiming the gospel. The good news, the gospel is that God has promised a kingdom and a king. Jesus has come and he's established his identity as the the, the king. The kingdom, when it comes, is a day of terror for those who don't know Christ, because that's the day of judgment, the day when our sins will be revealed, when we'll stand before God in judgment, and that should terrify all of us. However, this King Jesus, King Jesus, he has come to the earth not to condemn, but to save. He he came down from his throne, gave up his crown, and took up a cross. He died and rose from the dead. He ascended into heaven to reign and to rule over all the universe. Why? Why? So that those of us who trust, who believe, um, who repent and have faith, we are safe and secure in his loving, royal arms. Amen? That's the gospel. And it's by the gospel that we are saved. Now, let's connect the dots. Step back. Jesus, what does he... What is he um, Feel about people, compassion. Why does he feel that about people? Because he views them with eternity in mind. What does he spend his time doing? Um, Proclaiming the good news of the kingdom. Why does Jesus do that? This is so self-evident. And yet we need to spell it out because it's so crucial for all of us. Jesus spends his time proclaiming the gospel to lost people because the gospel is the only hope we have. There's no plan B. This is it. There's no hope outside of the gospel. The gospel is the very center of Jesus' ministry. You see, he is the gospel. He achieved the gospel by dying and rising from the dead. But he also spent all of his time proclaiming the gospel. When, When the word became flesh, he took on the flesh of an evangelist. Jesus is a missionary, an evangelist. He's come to seek and to save the lost. He proclaims the lost as of chief and central importance to his very life. Jesus is on a mission. And his mission is to see people saved and that means he views evangelism very differently than us look at verse 37 when Jesus thinks about evangelism he doesn't think of it with terror or with fear as many of us do which we'll talk about in a moment's time no no what does he say verse 37 he brings his disciples into him and he says the harvest is plentiful Now, harvest is a, is a um, a farming term, Jesus often used farming analogies because he's talking to country people. Uh, it's referring to that time of, of the season where you gather together the crops that you've planted. It's, it's a metaphor that Jesus uses to talk about growth, life. We survey the, the landscape of Australia and we think no one will ever become a Christian. People hate us. Christianity is dying and shrinking and falling apart. And yet Jesus is saying that believe it or not, many people are actually ready to believe in him, ready to be welcomed into the kingdom of God, even if it feels like no one is interested, even if it feels like everyone is hostile and aggressive, even if it feels like everyone is against us. Jesus says, that's not true. Have hope. There is a harvest. My people are out there, even if they don't know it. So what does all of this mean? about how we view people and the world, if we're to do the same as Jesus. Well, I just want to say one thing here. Um, What it means is that when we view people, whether they be the aggressive atheist, the antagonistic um, kind of relative, or the disinterested mate, or or whoever it is, uh, we do not view them with anger, or with contempt, or with hostility, or with frustration. But Jesus calls us to view people with compassion. And that means when you view anyone who's not a Christian, we're to view them with compassion, even if they don't feel like people you want to be particularly compassionate about or even need your compassion. I want you to think of the most successful person you know who isn't a Christian. They need your compassion because they don't know Christ. I want you to think about the most abundant, the most wealthy, the richest person that you know. They need your compassion because they don't know Christ. I want you to think about the most frustrated and painful person that you know who is not a Christian. They need your compassion because they do not know Christ. At Christmas lunch, I uh, had the opportunity to have my in laws over. It was. Uh, hmm, hmm. My, has this been streamed? <laughs> oh, they're not watching. My in laws are Italian. The food was good. <whistles> so we sat there at the kitchen table, the, 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 the dining table, I should say, and beforehand, my wife said, okay, we had an agreement. Um, We're not going to talk or engage in any sort of heated conversation about anything, politics, blah, 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 whatever it is. And we're going to save our kind of, you know, um, our talking energy for Christianity topics, for for the Bible topics, for God things that will evidently always come up. Um, I held to that agreement for at least 90 seconds. Um, (laughs) The conversation went from um, um, climate change, definitely my fault. Uh, uh, transgenderism, I'll leave it, Um, COVID, 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 uh, racism, uh, COVID, and eventually God. Um, And who could be stupid enough to believe in God? I've been trying to talk to these people for 10 years about Jesus. And I said, going, you kidding? I was so angry. I was so angry. I was so angry I went and and I did the washing up. I was that angry. (laughs) And Jesus makes it clear to us, no matter who the people are, we're to love them, have compassion on them. They're not beyond hope. They're not beyond help. And so here, um, as Matthew chapter 9 turns into Matthew 10, has my microphone been really annoying? Just to me. I'll just leave it. As Matthew chapter 9 turns into Matthew chapter 10, Jesus turns away from uh, you know, presenting his view of the world and what he's going to do about it uh, and brings in his disciples and engages them in their role. And I want to say that Jesus engages his disciples in a role that is very historically and biblically specific to them in many ways. Okay? They're Jewish disciples going to a Jewish people, and there's things there that aren't relevant to us. However, there are also principles that he unveils to his disciples which are absolutely urgently relevant to us. Um, and and very helpful to us in knowing what to do uh, in a world who seems completely disinterested. So um, I want to point out three things in this training and equipping sort of session that Jesus gives to his disciples. Have a look at verse 37. Remember, Jesus has said the harvest is plentiful. Yes. However, he then makes clear there's a problem. The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. What do you think is the biggest blockage to evangelistic growth in Australia? The media? The entertainment industry? Netflix? Liberalism? Fascism? White people? Black people? A hostile world? Disinterest? According to Jesus, the biggest blockage to evangelistic fruit. Uh, is not external to the church, but internal. A lack of Christians willing to do the work of evangelism. There's no shortage of evangelistic opportunity, no shortage of people who are lost. The shortage is of workers. And this is not just a reference to people who are in paid ministry, like pastors and, and ministers and whatnot. It is a reference to them, but also to ordinary Christians. Ordinary Christians who are willing... Um, to do the hard work of engaging with people, talking to people um, about Jesus. That's hard to hear, isn't it? But it's true, isn't it? And so what Jesus then does is, knowing this and knowing the difficulties of evangelism, he he presents a two-stage solution for his disciples to encourage them and encourage us to be involved in harvesting, involved in the harvest and the reaping. Have a look at verse 38. First thing he does is to tell people to pray. Ask the Lord of the harvest. Pause. The Lord of the harvest is God and Jesus, That they are the ones responsible for salvation and judgment. Nothing can happen outside of God's say so. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into the harvest field. You see, uh, the, the disciples are called to pray Um, to God, for for his assistance, for his help. But take note what they're called to pray for. This is really interesting. He he doesn't tell them to pray for the lost. Now that would be natural for us. When we pray about evangelism, uh, you know, the once a year that we do that, we might pray for the lost, people we know who don't know Jesus. That's what we would instinctively pray for. And I want to say, if you do that, amen, 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 hallelujah, keep going. That is a great thing to pray for. However, Jesus doesn't tell them to pray for the lost. Who does he tell them to pray for? For workers. Pray that God would send out workers. And send out means throw out with urgency. Now, why do you think Jesus does that? Jesus doesn't do things by accident. Why do you think Jesus tells his disciples to pray for workers? Well, look at chapter 10 now, verse 1 to verse 5. And you see, Jesus unveils in this moment the second step of his solution. Um, And I think makes it very clear why he's given the topic of prayer to be workers In chapter 10, verse 1 to 5, what we read is that Jesus, after telling his disciples to pray for more workers, then immediately sends them out as the very workers they were just praying for. They become the very people they've prayed for. You see, when you pray for the lost, you pray for people you know who don't love Jesus, which is a great thing to do. Well, it's, it's, it's easy to sort of disassociate yourself a little bit like that. Now, don't stop doing that, but I want to say uh, that's what can happen. But when you pray for workers for the lost, when you pray for workers, for people um, who love Jesus to come into the lives of the people you know who don't love Jesus, a penny slowly begins to drop. What is it? If I'm praying for God to send people... Who love Jesus into the lives of the people I know who don't love Jesus? Wait. It's me. God has sent them people who love Jesus. I'm the worker, not me, you. We're the workers. The heart of Jesus' ministry on earth is the gospel, make no mistake about that. And for his disciples, well, some people would argue that that the role of evangelism is solely uh, reserved for people with the gift of evangelism. Or some people would argue, well, 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 hold on, Jesus' directions of evangelism here, they're saved just for the apostles in the apostolic era, They're, they're not for ordinary Christians like us. But I want to suggest to you, do more than suggest, strongly suggest, that it is not possible to follow Jesus as your king, to follow in his steps, to walk the way he walked, to imitate him as the Bible commands us to do, without growing to value the very things that he valued, without having your life shaped by his character, without viewing the world the way that he does, without desiring the lost to be saved the way that he does, without loving the lost the way that he does, without caring so much about them, you are willing to put your reputation to death in order to see the lost saved. Because that's what your king has done for you. And when Jesus calls his people to follow him, he calls them to live their lives the way that he has. And when we do that, you see, that's when extraordinary things happen. Our lives can never be the same. In northern Africa, there was a leper colony of people with leprosy, a terrible disease, Um. Contagious and, and incurable, certainly at the time, and had soldiers stationed around this colony, this, this village that was created specially for people with leprosy. But the soldiers were positioned there not to keep people out, but to, to keep the lepers in. Once the people went in there, they never got out because if they got out, other people would catch it. So inside, they developed their own community shops and a little village, farms, wells, a graveyard. However, some local Christians asked the very, very obvious question um, who will share? the gospel with them. Who will do that? Well, they, they didn't buy a book and throw it over the wall. They didn't send an airplane to drop leaflets in. Two young men, probably your age, went in and they never came out. History tells us, and when I say history, I don't mean even that long ago of Christian men and women who sold themselves into slavery for life in order to reach slaves with the gospel. Not even that long ago, we have stories of men and women, young men and young women, who when they went overseas on the mission field to tell people in far-flung lands about Jesus, their luggage was a coffin. So final was their departure. They were not coming back and so they stored their goods in the place that they would lie when they were dead what is it that can make people do such extraordinary things like we can't even get out of bed what is it that can make people do such extraordinary things following the king loving jesus as your savior Following him as your king. You see, evangelism is an intrinsically godly, holy, sanctifying activity, and there's very little that can compare to it. And so I want to say we've got here these kind of two perspectives unveiled for us by Jesus how Jesus views the world, the lost, the gospel, and how he tells his disciples to do it. And you can sort of see they're one and the same. You know, Jesus is encouraging his disciples, really, then and now, to view the world, the gospel, And the lost in the same way as he does. And so the take home from this passage is a pretty simple one really, isn't it? We just need to step back if if you're a Christian here today. The take home from this passage is pretty simple, which is get to it. Get out there on the king's business. You are called and sent on behalf of the king of kings. Let's go into the harvest field and see people one for Christ. Let's evangelize. Now, it sounds so simple, doesn't it? And yet the problem with evangelism is that whilst the word is relatively easy to say, I want to say, and let me say, I am a paid evangelist. It's what I do for a living. I believe evangelism is quite possibly the single most difficult thing I've ever had to do in my life. And I don't just say that because I suck at it. I want to say for all Christians, it is is right at the top of the tree of, of most difficult things that God has called us to do. Don't you think that? I speak to people about evangelism, uh, different demographics and races and cultures, and believe it or not, most people say the same thing is at at the heartbeat of of stopping them sharing their faith. All of us find evangelism difficult, um, and believe it or not, most of us agree on the thing that stops us. Let me ask you, feel free to shout it out, um, what do you think is the main thing that stops people, um, that stops us sharing our faith with others? What do you think it is? Does anyone want to have a shout out? Being scared of rejection. Excellent, brother. Thank you. You know what? You won't top that because that's it. So (laughs) being scared of rejection. And I want to say there's legitimate fears at play in all of us because fear of rejection, fear of not knowing what to say, fear of destroying the relationship, fear of going too far, fear of X, Y, and Z. There's a bunch of things that are legitimate fears that we have in evangelism, and yet I actually believe all of those fears spring from a bigger one, a bigger fear that all of us have, all of us are actually enslaved to, and that is the fear of people. The best word to describe it is a fear of humiliation in front of people. You see, humiliation is a word that means shame and embarrassment. Um, and humiliation is the one thing that all of us are afraid of and terrified of and and hate more than anything else. John Calvin, who was a famous French uh, minister hundreds of years ago, he he, um, I'm summarizing what he said. He pretty much said most people would rather get punched in the face than be embarrassed. Most of us would rather go through physical pain than be humiliated, and I think that's absolutely true. Why? Because we care so much about what other people think. And that's the truth. And if you deny it, the only reason you're denying it is because you care what people think of you when you'd accept it. We're slaves to other people's opinions. We want to be well thought of. We want people to respect us, to like us, to admire us. And this is a problem when it comes to evangelism. Why? Because evangelism is an intrinsically humiliating experience. By its very nature, it's a humiliating thing to do. Talking to people about religion. In Australia, it's the worst. Just shut up. I'd rather talk about COVID. Most people can't stop talking about COVID, actually, can they? It's an intrinsically humiliating experience. And so we've got a real problem. Jesus commands us to do it. He makes it very clear that's what it is to be a follower of the King. And yet we've got this very difficult situation that all of us find it paralyzingly terrifying. We're terrified of people. So what do we do? Well, I reckon this passage doesn't just show us... um, Jesus' motivation and Jesus' message and his heart. But I think within these words that we've just been looking at um, is the method that Jesus is encouraging us uh, to follow. I think Jesus tells us what to do right here. And he tells us what to do in such a way um, that I think any one of us here who's a Christian can grab hold of this and um, have a transformed view of, of, of sharing our faith. Let me point out three things I think Jesus makes very, very clear for us who are, who are Christian people. We need to stop thinking of people the way we do instinctively and instead view people the way that Jesus does. I've already said this, but verse 36 makes it very clear when Jesus sees people, he has compassion. We are prisoners to other people's opinions. We're terrified of their ill feeling and their words. But what we need to be terrified of more than that is the eternal judgment and future awaiting those outside of Christ. We need to view people with love and compassion. And that's not an instinctive thing for us. It isn't. You need to proactively do it. Set it in your mind before you spend time with people. But I want to say to you, when you do that, the balloon of fear is popped why? Because it's very, very, very hard to be terrified of someone that you empathise for, you empathise with, you have compassion for. It's very difficult to be paralysingly terrified of someone who you deeply care and love and have a deep, deep concern for their future. How can we view people that way? Simply put, because we are recipients of the greatest compassion in the history of, of anything, the gospel. Yeah, no, Jesus... Oi, this is really annoying. And it's 100% my fault, beautiful sand people. Two. We need to stop viewing evangelism the way that we instinctively do and instead view evangelism the way that Jesus does. We are terrified about evangelism because we're terrified about the response that we'll get. It could be that as you think of sharing your faith with people that you know and love, you're terrified of how they will respond to you, of rejection, of of discouragement, of dismay, of being ignored or even aggressively confronted. Now, I want to say, if that is how you view evangelism, you're spot on. In fact, the problem you have is that you're not scared enough. Have a look at chapter 10, verse 16, I think it is, verse 16 and 17. Look how Jesus prepares his disciples for the mission that they're going to go on. Has this for a pep talk. I am sending you out like sheep among wolves, verse 17. Be on your guard. You will be handed over to the local councils and be flogged in the synagogues. Thanks, Jesus. That's great. I can't wait. Now, why, why does Jesus say that? Well, he says it because it's true. But why is it actually encouraging, not discouraging? My dear friends, this is liberation. We're terrified of evangelism because we're terrified of people's opinions. We're so desperate for them to think well of us. But Jesus promises us that no matter what we say, how we say it, how we present it, they will never be impressed with the gospel. Never. Never. And for Christian people, the Apostle Paul puts it this way, we are um, the aroma of life to some, but the stench of death to others. That's what we need to expect. And so when we face rejection, it doesn't mean failure. It's actually evidence of faithfulness in evangelism. And I want to say that it's in this, in this difficulty and struggle that God grows us and grows us powerfully in ways um, that we don't even imagine. And the final thing that I want to point out to you is that we need to think about the harvest the way that Jesus does. Jesus tells us that the harvest is plentiful. He sends his disciples out into difficulty proclaim. Why? Because Jesus promises us that even though evangelism is difficult and tough, God is not done saving people. And look at us. Look at us. He is not done saving people. Consider how Jesus approaches a land that was almost entirely non Christian, how the apostles in the rest of the New Testament approach a land that was almost entirely non Christian and guaranteed prosecution, persecution, attack, and hardship. Jesus views that world not as beyond his reach, but desperate for it. Think of Australia. It's easy for us to think that Aussies are beyond saving, that Australia is beyond saving, that revival is impossible. Yet that's not how Jesus views Australia, it's not how the gospel teaches us to view Australia. When we view Australia through the gospel's eyes, we see that we are not post-Christian. We will never be post-Christian. We are endlessly, endlessly pre-Christian. I told you before some statistics um, about the spiritual state of Australia, but um, last year in a poll about the spiritual nature of of our country, um, those weren't the only statistics that we saw. They weren't the only statistics that came to light. Let me read you some others. While 8% of people do not know a single Christian, that's millions of people, 79% of Australians do, they know at least two. Now this group of people were asked to describe the character traits of the Christians that they know. Here are the top three answers. Third, kind. Second, loving. First, caring. The media may hate us, but your mates, they like you. And if you're a non-Christian here with a Christian, turn to them, yeah, I like you. No, you don't have to do that. Please don't do that. I promise I will never get you to do that again. They may disagree with you, but they respect the life that you live as a, as a result of your faith. Now, in answer to the question which states, how open would you be to changing your current religious view, non-Christians open to change from either extremely open to slightly open is 26 During the experience of COVID-19, one in two Australians have thought about their mortality more. One in two Australians have thought about the meaning of life more. Now, hold on just very, very quickly. What do we do with that data? Let me put it this way. 50% of our nation, 50% of this country is thinking about life and death more. 80% of Australians know two or more Christians and like us. But here's the one I really want you to hold on to tightly, as tightly as you can. 26% of Australians, one quarter have indicated that they are open to thinking deeply about Christianity. They are open to investigating the claims of Jesus. That is 6.4 million people. What's the issue? We don't know who they are. Three out of four people will reject you, will say, no, not interested. How dare you? But one out of four, So, the question for you at the beginning of 2022 is a very, very simple one. Are you willing to go through the three to find the one? Is that a cost that you're willing to pay? Now, there's no guarantees, it's risky. But if you're a Christian here tonight, you were here because someone somewhere at some point or another took the risk on telling you or your family or your parents. Whilst many people have heard of Billy Graham, um, let me ask you has anyone here heard of Edward Kimball? Edward Kimball. I'd be very surprised if you had. Edward Kimball was a shoe salesman who worked in Chicago in the 19th century. Uh, he was a youth group leader at his local church. He was given a diagnosis when he was 40 that he was about to die. And so he felt a burden to evangelise all the boys in his youth group. Uh, One of them was a boy called Dwight. And Dwight uh, was a young man who was completely disinterested, quite antagonistic. But eventually, um, uh, after reading the Bible and evangelising him, Edward saw Dwight become a Christian. Dwight's full name was Dwight L. Moody. Has anyone heard of Dwight Moody? Slightly more. In the 19th century, he was the Billy Graham of that day. Now just follow this along as I quickly zip through this. let me me. Dwight Moody went to England to preach, and while he was there, a man called Fred Meyer was converted. Later, Meyer returned to to America to return the favor, and while he preached, a man called Will Chamber was converted. One of Will Chamber's mates was a guy called Billy Sunday, and Billy Sunday was a professional baseball player, and he became a Christian through Will's witness, and then Billy Sunday became the most famous evangelist in the world in the first half of the 20th century. He raised up other evangelists with him, one of whom... Check this name out. We don't name people like this anymore. One of whom was called Mordecai Ham. You got a pet pig? Mordecai Ham. Now, Mordecai Ham wasn't much of a preacher or an evangelist. He tried his best, but he didn't see much fruit. However, in 1924, at a small old-school tent revival in Charlotte, North Carolina, a young lanky boy, a teenager, by the name of Billy Graham, heard Mordecai Ham proclaim the gospel and Billy became a Christian. 25 years later, he would preach in Sydney where my dad was converted. And my dad was the first Christian in his family, but not the last. The entire trajectory of my family's eternity was shifted and changed, transformed. Very few of us in this room will be Billy Graham, but every single one of us can be Edward Kimball. Just ordinary Christians following an extraordinary God, sacrificing their reputations, going through the three to find the one. So let me ask you, at the beginning of 2022, I don't know what your resolutions are, but let me ask you, if you are a Christian here today, will you go into the harvest field today? Will you reach out with the good news of the gospel, to people you know who don't know Jesus this year. I'm going to close our time together in prayer, just as Jesus commanded us to do. And what I want to do is um, ask you, if you're a Christian, um, to think of four names of people you know who don't know Jesus. Um, and I'm going to give you an opportunity to pray for them, pray for the lost, but also to pray for you as a worker and for other workers. And I want to challenge you as we do that, to, to allow God to lay that burden on your heart to actually press forward in this to see revival in Australia this year let's pray to our great God Father we thank you so much for Jesus uh, Jesus died and rose from the dead he ascended to heaven with our name on his lips he did that for us so we could be saved Lord we pray for revival in Australia for millions of people to become Christians Specifically, Father, we pray for the following four people in our hearts. Father, you know these people and we pray that every single one of them becomes Christians. We pray for courage for us, for courage. That we would value your commands more than we value our own reputation. That we would persevere. And we pray for more and more and more people, millions of them in this nation, to become Christians. We pray this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. As you might have noticed, it is on your desk, your seat, I should say. We've got this little postcard here for the summer series, which is kicking off next week. This is a wonderful opportunity every single Sunday in January to bring someone with you. Don't invite them and not rock up. Bring them with you. Sit with them. Introduce them to non-weird people. It's going to be hard. But bring them in. Um, maybe you want to think of that person and invite them to read the Bible with you. Go through Matthew. Go through Mark. Maybe you could do that. We've got the Life Series kicking off in, in Term 1 in February. My dear friends, um, we'd love to encourage you to do that. Now, what better thing can we do in response to, to this great sort of commission that we've been given than to sing? i hand over these guys.